Hi, and welcome to Power of Ten, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail to organizational transformation and on to changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pollain. I'm a designer, educator, and writer, and currently group director of Client Evolution at Fjord. Back in the 1950s, plastics were still a new wonder material. But the problem with wonder materials is that people consider them valuable. How then do you sell more? Lloyd Stufer, the editor of Modern Packaging Magazine, had the answer. He argued to a group of industry insiders that, quote, the future of plastics is in the trash can. Later in 1963, he congratulated the Society of Plastics Industry for filling the trash cans, the rubbish dumps and the incinerators with literally billions of plastic bottles, plastic jugs, plastic tubes, blister and skin packs, plastic bags and films and sheet packages. The happy day has arrived, he said, when nobody any longer considers the plastics package too good to throw away. The end of the customer life cycle, whether digital service or physical materials, is generally not designed. Or if it is, it's designed to be ignored, discarded, and for customers to be encouraged to buy again. My guest today has delved deep into the subject of endings and has a very different way of looking and thinking about it. Joe McLeod has decades of product development experience across digital, physical, and service sectors. Previously head of design at the award-winning studio Us2, he then spent three years on the Closure Experiences project, researching, writing, and publishing the book Ends, why we overlook endings for humans, products, services, and digital, and why we shouldn't. He's now founder of And End, a business helping companies end their customer relationships. Joe, welcome to Power of Ten. Thank you. So what triggered your thinking about ENDS? And my introduction framed it as a sustainability issue, but this is, it's also about service experiences and, and digital and a whole much broader set of things, isn't it? Yeah, actually, it was a very different area. It was about an experience. So years ago, I had the voice recognition avatar service on my phone called Wildfires on Orange in the UK. And it... Um, this is 2004 or five. It was built up to be this amazing sort of future avatar secretary on your phone, which would handle calls when people left voice messages. And um, I signed up eagerly thinking how wonderful it would be. And it was so awful. It would me asking it to pick up my messages or uh, tell me who'd rung. I'd, I'd say wildfire who's rung or wildfire play me my messages. And it couldn't understand the thing. And, I don't think that's from my strong estuary accent. It's a lot more to do with, I don't think they tested it in the wild of like a road, for example. Anyway, it would just say, sorry, I don't understand you repeatedly. And I hated it so much. And the difference between the emotional onboarding, the beginning of the consumer life cycle for me was, wow, amazing future avatar, help me out, all sorts of things. And the reality of, sorry, I don't understand you just wasn't balancing up. But equally, the end of that, I wanted to throttle in, watch its horrible avatar eyes die. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't have the vocabulary or the understanding of what was going on to think about what I really meant by that. I wanted a satisfactory off-boarding experience, which is similar to the onboarding experience in its emotion. And so it's very much an emotional balancing act I was needing and I didn't know what to do about it but I did understand there was something very absent there that there was something missing for the consumer I also I mean maybe closer to the sustainability thing I was teaching at the time around 2004 at St Mines in London and I set 
a cliche project, I guess, around waste and rubbish in the world. And we all went off, done some designs, came back, and everyone designed more stuff. And I just thought we didn't know what to do about the end of the consumer life cycle. So I'd done a small project then, but I I basically had this itch in the background in this sort of, I guess, idea itch around endings in the consumer experience, closure experiences, I called them initially. And I went off, done my career, had that going on in the background almost as a hobby. And then in the last few years, I've come back to it about four years ago. I started to dig into it properly and really dug into the social ramifications of it and the psychological aspects of it. And uh, what I found was fascinating in terms of this bias that has been created over centuries, really, deep, deep in our religion, our social structures in, in Northern Europe and the and way the Industrial Revolution started from a Protestant relationship with death and how much of that came together into the Industrial Revolution and then was just really energised in the consumer boom in the US. And now we're in this state where we have no vocabulary for endings in the consumer life cycle. And that's basically what the book's about, is that long uh, history social structure and psychology around why we can't deal with climate change, mis-selling financial services, revenge porn in digital, and all of these other aspects which we think are almost, whether it be sustainability, whether it be moral obligation or some sort of digital design, actually they've got deeper roots which are a lot more about social relationships, sociology. So tell me about that a little bit. I mean, before we were recording, we did say we wouldn't talk about death massively in here, but it is quite important that sort of when you talk about this and when you give your talk about this, you you actually kind of go into this in, in quite a lot of detail. What would you say the kind of thread or summary is through through there when you talk about the sort of societal aspect of how we talk about endings? So hundreds of years ago, we had a far closer relationship with death. It was very much part of life. It was, you lived, you died, then you got to heaven. And it was a transition moment. It was also something to, an opportunity to reflect on your life in a philosophical way. It was an opportunity for others to be with you and discuss things with you at that point. So people would be in the bedroom dying for sometimes weeks. People would come into the sort of death chamber or that the bedroom with a dying person in and then talk to them about, their lives, what they believed in, their relationship with God and and lots of other aspects. And there was other things which were going on, like the Aris Moriandi, which was the book of dying, which you'd was 12 chapters of prayers that you needed to go through to get to heaven. And these were very social events at the end of life, which would be administered by maybe a priest, but also loved ones, family members, local people. It was quite a social event. Kids were invited. It was very normal practice. And um, then we pushed the experiencing and the witnessing of death away from ourselves over centuries. And more recently, since the Industrial Revolution, we've distanced ourselves from our families. We've moved to cities and we haven't got such close communities at home anymore. And so the experience of death and witnessing discussion around it has moved on and we've we've distanced ourselves from it there was a phrase in a book i read which was the coming of pornography of death which was we've changed death from being a normal part of life to something which is not discussed not acknowledged not got near mm. 
And I think that's a, a good term of it. And th- so the ramifications of this is there's other aspects which are um, how in some religions you can renounce your sin as you go through life to then get better access into heaven. And then there's other religions which you only get one choice at the end of life to grapple with whether you get into heaven or not. And these things used to be talked about a lot. And we've removed this discussion about an end, an ultimate end of death, whether it be yours or someone else's. And we've mimicked this as the Industrial Revolution has energised and then got very much a grip over not just the UK, but Northern Europe, and then it grows and grows and it changes. And it also adopts a desecularized view of the Protestant relationship with endings. It goes to the US and, and gets energized even more. And we, we have on our hands um, a religious relationship with consumerism, which hasn't got any relationship with death. And it's, um, it's out of control in terms of its ending. Now, that seems very big sociological type of thing, but, but there's a lot of evidence, and I put it all together in the book, of how we aren't going to grapple with a lot of the problems, the ills of consumerism, by dealing with them in the very sort of short-term materialistic nature that we do currently. So, in fact, it's interesting, going back to your intro around plastics, one of the first introductions of plastic was through a concern about the environmental aspect of killing loads of elephants to make billiard balls. So billiard (laughs) balls used to be made from ivory. Over the growth of billiards as a sport and um, the sort of aristocracy or the upper classes became a lot more concerned with where the source of that was and killing loads of elephants for it. So somebody started to look into what alternatives there was and one of them was this sort of resin early version of plastic. And so it's it's interesting to think how that ecological concern has now turned into another ecological concern. It actually had a really ecological source on some levels. That's funny, isn't it? They, they, didn't they used to be made out of cellulose as well at some point? And they used to explode. No, I didn't hear that, but that's very interesting as well. <laughs> I think so. Well, because when on impact, but it's interesting just hearing you speak um, about this, and we'll we'll come back to it and sort of move into the the kind of services experiences and stuff too. The distancing from death. There's also distancing from birth. So you know, if you have a child in the hospital, and and you know, one of the things that happens is it gets kind of taken away and put in a in another room, and then if you have a uh, you know, obviously the classic thing that often happens if someone dies in hospital is that uh, you know the relatives are kind of pushed out of the operating theater or they're pushed out of the kind of room not always obviously it depends on the kind of death but certainly if it's a, a, a sort of traumatic death because you know to separate the emotions from the people who are kind of actually then working on the the, the patient who eventually dies and so it strikes me that um, you know one of the things that you when you describe our relationship to death and the sort of social aspect of it earlier we were also much closer to the entire cycle so pre-industrial you're very close to the source of your food you're probably growing most of it yourself and they're very close to the source of most of the products you use because you probably were in the same village or town as the craftspeople who made them and so you know also very close to the waste as well 
And so you have a very kind of clear idea. Either that was a cycle in which your your waste was, I think classically, you know, the waste from, say, Paris was fertilizing the the fjords around Paris to grow the food and to feed the Parisians, for example. And now that sort of that becomes more and more abstract. And obviously the Industrial Revolution abstracts that relationship to the production and disposal of, of products and and digital does it even more. And I was having a conversation just yesterday, actually, with my colleagues talking about that there's like a, I mean, it's interesting seeing, say, sort of Greta Thunberg on the one end and this sort of aging population on the other end because one of the, the two areas, I mean, obviously kids get marketed to all the time, but um, it's almost sort of in terms of, certainly in terms of sustainability and climate change, the sort of kids are outside of the, or have previously been outside of the, the sphere of influence and, and what's going on is that kind of pushback. But old people are also kind of very much left out. And so consumerism is terribly focused on youth or at least that kind of, you know, 20s and 30-year-olds. And then it kind of slightly shifts. But it's, it's there's a, if you were to draw a kind of bell curve, it's very much focused around this is what the brands kind of want and this is what clients are all kind of banging on about. And we need to get to millennials and so forth, right? Because it's that sort of, that middle. And so these other swathes of the population which you know at the kind of young and old end are kind of forgotten about and it almost feels like that represents part of the the problem i think it depends on how you look at consumerism so if you're looking at influence certainly that's very much youth orientated and you can see that in trends from you know fashion trends for decades and decades but if you look at consumption and you look at say carbon impact on a level of consumption then actually the that demographic doesn't impact it very much. My brother, as a quick anecdote, he works on the transition movement. And part of that is working at a university to try and lower their carbon impact of um, students. But actually, students really don't impact carbon very much. Although they're that demographic that you talk about, many of them are millennials or, or younger. Some of the biggest impacts are, the, are at the older age and even retired sort of baby boomer age groups. They're big houses that are heating, regular holidays, potentially running two cars. But yeah, they don't have a influence in terms of trends of consumption, but they certainly have an influence in terms of consumption if you're talking about carbon. And with, with going back to the um, thing you were talking about, I thought that was interesting, the how hospitals engage in stuff. There's an intervention need in a hospital, which again, I think is interesting where we forget the emotions of consumerism. So what I talk about in terms of endings and reflections and being in the experience of the offboarding thing and what we can gain out of that. But when you are in hospital having a child, there's a natural urgent urge for the hospital to intervene in that and to be in control of that. And I think that reflects a lot around how we consume in a wider sense. And with death as well, there's a sense of making the person comfortable doing those things and there's um in hospice care it's a, also there's um, a lot of work around getting the person so they are comfortable to talk in a fluid way with their with their family at the end instead of getting the person comfortable so they're out of it and not experiencing not experiencing death so that's the you know we've been talking about the the kind of very serious end of of life which is death but um you also talk about sort of everyday 
experiences you talk about services a lot and and the kind of cycles and you sort of i mean i've your book and the whole kind of thesis is is music to my ears because i've for a long time you know classically in in sort of customer journeys or in service design you talk about you know the the awareness the sign up you know or joining the service then using it and then kind of expanding your use of it and then there's the leave bit and the leave whenever i do workshops with clients and with um people kind of learning this stuff the leave column is always the one that nobody thinks about in fact, you know, marketing people always fill up the first one of how people find out about the stuff. But uh, it, I always used to see it as, as relationships, right? It, the, the way you break up with someone, you know, makes a big difference. And when you've got something like a utility where the, the dating pool is like maybe three or four utilities, it's incredible how difficult sometimes companies make it to kind of to leave with them. And you talked about this quite a lot in your talk. Can you talk about it a little bit here? Yeah, and I think a good example of that is that there's plenty of industries have approached this idea of someone leaving with like brutal retention. And a gym industry, for example, there's 30 to 50% turnover in the gym industry in terms of people arriving, usually just after Christmas, and then leaving probably somewhere <laughs> in me. June or the summer. Yeah, a lot of people do it. But the gym industry just used to try and soften that bulge in their customer base by um, giving everyone quite strict retention contracts. So you weren't really allowed to leave. They would fine you quite heavily for that. And you'll chat to anyone who goes to gyms and they'll have a story about how they couldn't leave a gym and it cost them loads of money to leave, et cetera, et cetera. That industry's had that going on for a decade at least. and. Um, more recently, though, the gym industry's collapsed in that middle market where they used to have like strict contracts. And there's the high end, which is sort of spa treatments, personal coaches, that's still in place. But the mid market's collapsed, and there's loads of new gyms opening up, which are come and go as you please. They're a lot more simple, they're a lot more humble, and it's the freedom that people want to leave things. And we've got this obsession with retention, which is incredibly damaging to brands. If you're a brand and you're thinking, great, I've got this customer, they've been with us for a year and they really better not leave and I'm going to sell them hard on any product that I've got in my portfolio. If you're still doing that, you really should have been doing that last decade. This decade, if you're doing that and you're also turning on customer relationships with a server in some sort of remote server farm somewhere, and so there's no impact of people coming. You should build in. There's no impact of people leaving either. And make sure that brand experience at the offboarding is so good that they'll come back to you at another day. Because so many companies are like obsessed with selling hard at the end of the consumer life cycle and getting them back. When actually, I think what we've got to start doing is looking at, I call them single and multiple engagement models, where a lot of industries are single engagement model where they assume a consumer is going to become a customer in a single permanent engagement forever. But what we've got to move to is setting up your whole business so you you acknowledge that people will come and go and you set it up so it's doing that. And then you plan in for like a decade of pushing your brand to being the best in the marketplace and not pushing that customer to prop up your anxieties about someone leaving. Telcos are the most sort of famous for them, or telcos and sort of cable companies are some of the kind of most famous examples of that. Yeah, there's some brutal. I mean, it doesn't take long to go online and find some really brutal um, 
and crazy ideas to how you would retain someone and why it's really important. In fact, I did chat to somebody from a big telco who used to be in one of those teams and they just get such a lot of pressure from senior management to make the numbers at the end of the month add up. But it's so short term and the damage you do to customer relationships when you're hard selling them. And you can you also hear like lots of those anecdotes of people who are um, who've had their grandparents sold a massive Sky package by someone or I mean Sky's not the only one, but you know, it's a good example. There's been anecdotes about that. You talked about one where there was a, a sort of hour long interview in order to leave. Yeah, that's right. That used to go on and um you weren't allowed to leave until you endured a one hour sales interview. <laughs> that that company actually has pulled it like Somebody from that company came up to me at a conference a few months ago and said, oh, we got rid of that a couple of months ago. I was like, a couple of months ago? Really? <laughs> you, you, you still thought that was a good idea up until a couple of months ago that you could beat someone up for an hour by a professional salesperson? Incredible. Well, there was also this thing you said, you know, there was, there's really only a kind of couple of reasons why you leave, which is I don't want that thing anymore. I, you yeah. know, I no longer want this relationship with you or I've got some external circumstances like you know, you're moving or whatever that means you, you don't have it anymore. Yeah, there's two reasons people leave. The product's not appropriate or external circumstances. And you can only do a thing out of one of those and that's about the product, not about <laughs> them leaving. It's too late by then. Well, it's always struck me, you know, um, the churn strategies, you know, this idea is we, we need to really kind of have a, a churn strategy in it. I always find that a kind of weird thing because what you're really saying is we need to find a way to stop our customers leaving us, which is, well, you provide a better service then. In fact, churn is a really good feedback mechanism. It's a really great kind of flow of information about what's not working rather than locking people in and, and they hate you forever more of that, that actually there's an opportunity there to go, yeah, well, thanks for the feedback. Sorry to see you go. If you ever want to come back, here's some amazing thing for you. And that's what's always struck me about the weirdness about endings not being designed, which is, is such an opportunity to make people actually, if they're, if they're leaving because they kind of don't like you anymore, to make the experience so great of leaving that there's a little bit of kind of leaver's regret that comes in. So that maybe when you do swap to another brand or company, you inevitably get kind of fed up with them. You kind of go back, and that's why I think a bit about relationships. It's almost like you look through your black book and go, oh, well, yeah, that telco, we had some good times. Maybe I'll try them again. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, there's so much wrapped up in it. And it's why, um, for example, how many sales interviews, discussions or meetings have you gone to every month? You know, you go into the sales meeting and you talk about like how we're going to grow here or do this. Or, I mean, so many people have those type of monthly meetings in their diary. But how often do people get together and talk about how our offboarding experience is? And that's incredibly rare. And this this is a cultural thing, really, and, and why I, I never apply it. Well, I do apply it brutally to different industries, but it's across all of them. It's actually, you have to lift yourself above it to see it in a far clearer uh, way. You know, In fact, going back to your 10 by 10 thing is um, lifting yourself above into another realm. So you're getting a, like a, a far bigger macro view of everything. That's the way to deal with endings and to look at them more philosophically. You you have, I mean, you've touched on it a bit, but you've, you've gone a bit of a sort of framework for this as well. I mean, you, you kind of talk about the kind of different cycles and, your, and, and the sort of curve of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of people think the end is quite one-dimensional, but actually 
you load up how the end's going to happen at so many other points right across the consumer life cycle. One thing that people often overlook is the type of transaction that you will have in your product, service, digital product. So, for example, there's broadly five different transaction types. There's payment after delivery, payment before delivery, scheduled payment, synchronous payment, and continuous observation. Those are like five different payment things. And let, let me take you through them and the characteristics that they have and, and also the companies that often use them. So you can imagine payment after delivery is quite common in restaurants. And uh, so after you've experienced the meal, you pay the bill. But at, at that point, you have ever such a lot of leverage as the customer. The consumer is empowered. They have a great opportunity to give really clear feedback. And the best of restaurants also welcome that feedback in and will be very good at, at discussing it and resolving it. And also the experience of that transaction is very visible, often cash, you know, or even to the point where cash is left on a table. And that transaction is very good, healthy for the consumer. In stark contrast, payment before delivery the sort of payment you have on flights or trains or at a concert. And as a consumer, you don't have much leverage at all at that point. You've given up the money before you've experienced the service. And inevitably, if you, for example, have a late train or anything like that, you've got to do a lot of work to either get that money back or even get listened to. It's very characteristic of that type of transaction to have forms to fill in and lots of frustration for the consumer. And then... Thirdly, we've got scheduled payment. That comes out of sort of a gym industry or utility companies. And we get regular payments that we've set up in our bank accounts with direct debits. They're often very forgotten about. They drift out of my account and they drift into the utility company's account very smoothly every month. I've totally forgotten about it. I think this is a very good example that how many people have gone into their bank account, looked at their bank statement and said, oh, I don't remember paying for that, or I'm still paying for this, and there's a some sort of scheduled payment dripping out of the thing. So the end well, that's the whole subscription economy, right? Exactly, yeah. and um, the relationship with that is that that is an ending. Every point where you make that sort of example of transaction, you had leverage, there was a sort of an opportunity for discussion, but this starts to get removed when you have these very hidden things. Then you've got synchronous payment, which is comes out of the sort of product industry where we used to go into a shop, hand over some money, get access to a can of beans or something. And then and that was a very honest, open transaction. It was good for the consumer, it was good for the provider. And we've digitized that into getting immediate access to films and music and stuff. As a, an additional point here, the mimicking of that into the product world is not going to last very long because so much of that is uh, based on licensing. And so the, the real relationship isn't with the product and it's set up as a sort of fake synchronous transaction. And lastly, we've got continuous observation, which is what we do with so many of the digital products and services we have. We have, as a consumer, looked through some T's and C's, terms and conditions, and we flicked across them and thought, God, that's really boring. Then you've clicked a radio button, which says, I agree. And then you've basically made the transaction, which is your data being observed. And the, the really worrying thing about this is that there's no visibility of the transaction beyond that moment. You can't... Where the actual all, transaction that's going Yeah, on. where all of these other types of transaction 
have happened, they've concluded, there's some sort of resolution. The continuous observation one is continuous and there's no ability to go into your bank account and see it dribbling out. It's so deep in so many of these relationships that you've got to dig in, almost log in first, then dig into settings, then work out what settings are going on. And to some degree, GDPR has exposed a lot of that. I mean, we get pop-ups on every website now. But For the people who don't live in Europe, that's the general data protection regulation, which means that anything that's gathering data on you. So that's for us, it's like every single website you go to pops up with a, a kind of cookie thing saying, do you agree to all of these different things? Uh, yes, absolutely. And it's um, in terms of endings, because all of this is about endings and setting yourself up for endings, is that the consumer has no visibility of the transaction existing anymore, yet it is going on all the time in the back end of their cookies or their browser or their phone. Or And I think that is a worrying development because it has reduced consumer empowerment on so many levels. We also talk about sort of different engagement models and, and you give a couple of examples. They are kind of physical and digital ones. You talk about the, the printer cartridge and, and taking the Apple laptop back what's interesting about those and i'm going to get you to kind of tell me about them in a second is that you know endings have to be designed from the start right it's not it's almost like you want to work backwards and in fact that's probably kind of i guess part of your thesis is a cure for many of the society's ills would be to start with the endings and sort of work backwards to the beginning rather than just start with the beginning and then kind of ignore or forget about the ending the Apple one I thought was quite interesting because Apple is so well known for this kind of amazing onboarding experience. But you sort of argue that they basically sort of dropped the ball several times at the offboarding experience. Yeah, and I think this is a bigger systemic problem with thinking about endings in the consumer life cycle is that what we've done, and it's very much wrapped up in environmentalism and the way we approach sustainability. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to take us out of this obsession with um material consequences and sustainability so when people talk about plastic in the sea we have a consumer model that is very well crafted at onboarding that we have so many very sophisticated methods tools to initiate an emotional consumer experience that reacts in all sorts of facets of ways we can move that consumer through all sorts of components of their experience at onboarding and then through usage. And at offboarding, we turn into this very brutalistic, simplistic idea of what we should be doing at offboarding. So, and partly this, I think, is a challenge to the circular economy, is our solution seems to be at the offboarding consumer lifecycle is recycling. And we immediately start talking about plastics in the sea, material consequences. We don't talk about the consumer experience at offboarding. The consumer is so often lost between not wanting to use a product anymore and what recycling thing they're meant to put it in. So to come back to the Apple thing, as an example, we as many families have a, an old Apple computer, and it could be any laptop really, but it, it, this happened to be an Apple one, and it characterizes all of the aspects of it. Now, Apple talk about your ability to take a product back to them and get some money. They talk about how many robots they've got, which dismantles their phones. And they talk about other aspects of their good material usage, recycling programs, etc. But they don't take the consumer from 
usage to offboarding in a guided, nurturing sense as they do onboarding. So on loads of onboarding experiences, especially with digital, you have some sort of instructional hand-holding to get the person up and running. Now, we could do that at offboarding. Apple, for example, have knowledge about your battery, its capabilities, what operating system you're on, your usage patterns. They also know that they filed a patent like six months, a year ago about the cracks in your screen and how they know about them before you can see them with the naked eye. So they have this theater of opportunities to assemble together, which at the beginning of the consumer life cycle happens through an onboarding sequence. So you get your banking details, your previous content, your Apple membership all come seamlessly through and loads of security stuff as well, by the way, seamlessly set you up so you're up and running within a few minutes. Offboarding, though, we don't have anything like that. It's basically you end up good usage and then all of a sudden Apple will step in right at the end. So we had a 10-year-old laptop that my wife had used for years and then we handed down to our kids. The battery starts to blow and I think, we should probably take that back or put it somewhere so it's not dangerous. It looked really dangerous, our kid playing on it. So we take it back to Apple and I walk into the Apple store with my son and um, we take it up to one of the people there and we say, oh, we're bringing this back. think you should probably look after this seeing that this looked so dangerous. And the guy says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll get you a form to fill in. And just whenever anyone says, I'll get you a form to fill in, you know full well no one's ever thought about this issue like in a proper way. They've just thought about it in a legal consequence way. If everyone's talking about legalities at the end, then they haven't thought about it. Legalities are the default that we should be thinking about. So partly the problem is that we have so many opportunities to design off-boarding experiences. And off-boarding experiences take the user from usage to the end. They're not the aftermath where I've given over my phone, my laptop, my whatever, and we're talking about recycling. This is about the consumer experience. And the reason we need to do this, and I'm very passionate about this, is we need clearer guidance for consumers to either recycle or to do something or better partnerships between the consumer and the provider. And we need to keep all of these issues inside the consumer experience. Because at the moment, everything after usage just falls to the floor and then society picks it up. And society deal with the offboarding experience of almost everything. So you'll have society will pick up the issue around like end-of-life cars or they'll have legalities around end-of-life cars. Not that many companies help you offboard your car from like your car's not going so well and and take it to the grave. I mean, you can hire cars, do you? And I often talk about them in the seven-year warranty, which is a fantastic example of thinking about a long-term consequences of purchasing something. Now, if somebody came out, like, for example, if Apple came out and said, most phones will last between two and four years, and at that time, you're going to get an app that will help you off-board your phone and extend its lifespan for different reasons. These are the sort of things that we need to think about. It's the usage pattern. Between usage and the end is where we need to really do so much work. And it's not about what materials we've got because it's a totally different concept and a totally different discussion. I've never gone out and said, I'm going out to buy some plastics. That's not how the consumer onboarding experience goes. 
but we <laughs> tend to talk about plastics so much at the offboarding. So you talk about this idea of being sort of consciously connected and you have this, you've got a whole set of different kinds of endings you talk about, but you also talk about this you know, being emotional, engaging, timely and actionable. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So a good consumer ending needs to be consciously connected to the rest of the experience. So this is what I mean is that if we have the different language at the offboarding experience, which we tend to a lot because it's uh, society speaking to you at offboarding, we need to make that the same language inside the consumer life cycle. So it's the responsibility of the provider to offer that same language at the end of the consumer experience. So it should be consciously connected to the rest of the experience through emotional triggers that are actionable by the user in a timely manner. So yeah, consciously connected, that's beginning to end. So it's the same narrator, it's the same narrative, it's the same language that are coming in and out. Like good film. So your Apple example is, a, is an example of that not happening. Exactly. you beautiful unboxing experience and then you've got a crappy form for that. Exactly. I didn't have to sign up with a form for my .Mac account 10 years ago. So I shouldn't have to sign up with a form when I'm offboarding. So conscious connect to the rest of the experience through emotional triggers. So onboarding, everything is about emotion. I go out and I will have choice about what color I want. That's an emotional decision. I'm going to make a, I want to be more background. So I'm going to get a black one or I'm going to be loads more foreground. So I'm going to get a neon bright acidic one. These are emotional decisions about characteristics. We need to sort of offer those at the end. So people have emotional reflection, emotional opening up about thinking what they got out of that. If you think about the um, opportunities for reflection at the offboarding experience of most of the products in your house, you're basically going to come up against none. Most of the products we experience have no emotional engagement at the offboarding experience. We don't build it in. And we also don't build it in culturally. It's uh, If you go into Shinto Buddhism, then there's a lot around things having a life and respecting that life. So you will, will think about that at the end of the product's um, life cycle, and then you will thank it and you will reflect on the benefits you got out of it. But we don't tend to do that, and it hasn't really been embedded into consumerism in a very... Unless you're Marie Kondo. Right? Yeah, I mean, Marie Kondo is um, bringing a lot of Shinto religion into that and uh, if I mean if you watch the Netflix thing you get a bit of that but really read the book there's so much more richness in the book and meaning uh, and it's a shame that the TV show is a little bit of a guilt exhibition of uh, people who've got grubby houses so yeah it doesn't really go into the meaning around it yeah so it's a conscious connect to the rest of the experience through emotional triggers that are actionable by the consumer so when I say actionable I mean that the consumer has to take action with it in a positive way. Instead of this passive, oh, what recycling bin shall I put it in? They haven't had guidance. There is not a construction around that as part of the consumer life cycle. It's outside of the consumer life cycle. It's part of society asking you to do it. But what we need to do is make sure the consumer is in partnership with the provider and there's an opportunity for the to be action. And that's a moment for the consumer to also reflect on the emotional angles of it, but when you do it actionable, it also gives them a level of responsibility that they tend to not have at the moment in a lot of the ways we deal with it in a social sense, in a societal sense. So 
On the responsibility front you talked about, and actually it was me in the audience at UX Australia who seemed to be the only one who knew about the um, consumer electronics waste symbol. Which yeah, is like that's mind-blowing. I've really been with a cross through yeah. it. And, and um, it's on everything. I mean, any anything with circuitry and a battery in, you'll, you'll see it everywhere. Um, and it's basically, don't throw this away. But there's no, this is where this goes. There's no information about what to do with it. It's just telling you, don't do that. Yeah, so if people can't action, don't. There's no way you can get into a point where you say, like, I'm going out to don't do something. That doesn't work even as a <laughs> sentence. No one goes out and don't do anything. So you can't really go around don't doing any sort of positive action with things. And this is what I mean by actionable. It needs to be positively actionable, not uh, negatively actionable in that sense, how you get to a cul-de-sac in terms of don'ts. And I, th- I think there's enormous problems with we've got to a point where products are so complex where we can only talk about plastic bag. We've got to plastic bags and straws in terms of complexities of grappling with consumerism. And we've taken decades to get to that point. If that's the pace that we're going at to deal with this, we are screwed. Because <laughs> we've got to get to <laughs> we've got to get to mobile phones, TVs, printers. <laughs> All sorts of other consumer electronics that at the moment, because of no instruction and the don't thing, when you get your new phone and you've got your old phone and you transfer all your data over and you, you think, oh, great, I've got my new phone all set up. What should I do with my old phone? And then for a few seconds, you think about it and then you open up the drawer of your desk and you put it in there with the other five generations of mobile phones you don't know what <laughs> yeah. to do with. One of the, um, I think one of the most instructing kind of things you can do is to go to the local dump so i had to take some photographs of uh, for a sustainability project years ago actually more than uh, 13 years ago and uh i went up and you know in germany it's it's pretty well organized and all the kind of recycling and stuff and the, but there's these huge containers there those kind of big sometimes you see them driving along the road it's a big kind of container with a kind of like an open top and there's you know scrap metal in there and so forth and wood in another one and but then there are containers full of washing machines and there's another container that's full of fridges. The very worst one is the one that's full of computer stuff, you know, because it's what that symbol is telling you to do is that's where you go and throw it, which is, you know, printers, loads and loads and loads and loads of printers, lots of really cheap kind of keyboards and stuff and an astonishing amount of flat screens and flat screen TVs, you know, and I see this kind of flat screen TV smashed lying kind of flat in, the, in these things thinking, wow, probably... Three years ago when it was, you know, HD, I bought and bought my flat screen and now, you know, they bought their ultra HD one. So that thing's just kind of lying smashed in, the, in a skip with a thousand other ones. It's, it's incredible. And this is such a problem we've got. We've off-boarded into society. So it becomes this generic, massive mess. Instead of for every company that produces, we should be enforcing them to create off-boarding experiences that get back to a point where they can reclaim that product into their manufacturing system, not to off-board it into society to generic sort of holes in a massive container to then put your flat screen LCD screen into and then it goes shipping onto things. There's so many problems with this. There are. So Apple took your laptop back and gave you a crappy photocopied form to sign. What emotional things did they miss there? What, how could they have done that differently? Firstly, they didn't even know that this existed and they didn't know that it's coming to an end. And they could have had that knowledge. There's been that IP address on the internet 
and it's been attached to an Apple account. iCloud. Yeah, an iCloud account, firstly from my wife and then from my son. And then they could have observed usage and certainly they've got knowledge of battery state. So you start to see the battery unperforming and going down and down and down and other behaviours around it in terms of its usage. You could have definitely worked out uh, an understanding and come to an understanding that this product is really not very healthy anymore and we should probably get in touch with them to bring it in. And to do that, they could have just told us that and out of fear we might have done it, but they could have also welcomed us in as very loyal Apple consumers to energize that relationship, to potentially give us a voucher, to potentially get a new computer, to encourage my son to become a loyal Apple user. And obviously we're using Apple as this overall Mm. company, but there's these opportunities which are being overlooked in a consumer experience sense, which we just apply legalities, product safety components, and give no instruction. And if we built experiences specifically between usage and the end, we could solve so many of these ills. It's interesting, You, uh, what you just described, going right back to the beginning, was basically the opportunity to create a, a social and respectful and, and timely funeral for your product, right? That's right. And with the timeliness, we are happy to let things linger in our homes. One of the biggest real estate markets in the US is off-site storage. We are just running out of places to put all the junk we've bought. And we have no vocabulary to resolve that other than buy more stuff. And whether that stuff be an opportunity to store more stuff, then so be it. But we have to have a new route to do this because at the moment, this isn't going anywhere. And definitely it does have a lot to do with reflection, death, coming together and having emotional discussions about that, yeah. Well, I think one of the things you said when you were talking about that laptop, for example, was that it's it's been like a kind of a loyal thing i mean if you imagine a a craftsman throwing away their kind of you know i don't know carpenter throwing away a chisel that they've worked with for 10 years you know it would be quite an emotional thing and and so you we kind of cars are one of the most obvious ones you you, when you sell a car i mean i there's never been a situation where i haven't seen someone crying or you know been it myself when a car has been sold you know or or even worse when it goes off to the dump but the people saying saying goodbyes to the cars because it's so full of experiences rather such kind of um, vehicles literally of of our experiences the holidays the arguments and all of that kind of stuff and this sort of family cocoon there is an enormous amount of emotion pent up in so many consumer experiences some of them have very meaningful things like you're talking about which is very rich and almost a total easy goal for anyone who wants to get into that creating endings for car experiences but all of our products could potentially have much better endings than what we currently do with them. But even quite abstract things. I mean, you, you talked about the mortgage on your house, the home loan on your house that you've you know been paying this thing off for. And you, you talk about yeah. this, <laughs> paying this thing off for like 20 years. Yeah. And at the end, you get, you know, a letter. Exactly. And, and you imagine like that should be, it's the biggest financial outlay that you're going to have in your life is a mortgage. And you're going to chip away at that over decades and to the point where somebody's going to send you a cold letter to say this is completed now 
And what they should be doing is having this massive celebration. I mean, they've made like 80 grand out of you over that period of time. So there should be a stack of emotional and financial opportunities to really elevate that. And not to mention, imagine the brand equity of like, I've been with HSBC, I've been paying this mortgage and I'm just about to finish it, really looking forward to that special HSB party that everyone talks about. That would be incredible. <laughs> that, but instead, the thank, what, the thank you party. Yeah, and in, instead what we've got to is um, we've made that a load more short-term. So uh, financial services got more and more short-term. They've given up with the emotional attachment long-term. So we've got short-term in almost everything. I mean, a cliche is the better rates you get as a new customer than you do as a loyal old customer. But you also get, we're taking mortgages now, uh, like a two-year lock-in or a one-year lock-in. And so there's actually no interest in doing long-term real paying down that. So, so what we've ended up creating is a load of um, not debt payers, especially in credit cards, obviously. That, but credit cards, you don't get celebratory, well done, or even any benefit for paying down the credit debt. What you do get is more points on your card for putting more debt on it. So we don't create debt payers. We're creating debt indulgers almost. Which is what happens at the end of your, your home loan, right? Which is now that you've paid that off, do you know what? You can release equity and you can, you can take on more credit. Absolutely. So the, the opportunities are gigantic. One thing I think we were talking about death earlier, and I've been looking into, I prefer to keep on products and services, but I think um, Facebook memorialized pages as sort of, I think a halfway house between death and and a product service offering. Now, for years, Facebook, Google, and in fact, seven years it took Facebook between they starting and offering memorialized pages to realize humans die. But now they're really good at humans dying. So they create memorialized pages, which I think are a really poignant way to capture someone's life. And if you were on Facebook for years, and it's a great place. There's loads of issues around the longevity of that. The best memorial statues, methods of memorializing people have been ones which are very much more time, they're timeless. So you can imagine it 10 years in the future, 50 years in the future, 100 years in the future. But when you apply that to social networks and look at Facebook memorial pages, that isn't really the case. So at the moment, Facebook are kicking in with like 2.4 billion people monthly active users, right? The permitted age of a Facebook account is 13, and they've, they're pretty much maxing out with just getting everyone online for across the world. But there's a point where every company starts to fail and, uh, and sort of soften off their things. So you imagine going, let's say, 70 or 50 years into the future, where all of those people which are currently on Facebook are then dying so we get to a point where worldwide life expectancy is 71. So you think about that sort of 70-year period in the future where 2.4 billion are now memorialized on memorialized pages and Facebook isn't growing as much as it used to be and it's not as cool as it used to be. And you think to the point where there's going to be more inactive users on Facebook than there is active users where it will become a memorialized <laughs> website. And then it will have to be servicing passive pages that are only static, that people are only visiting. Once. I think this is when you, and when I talk about ends, is that if you are so ignorant that your business product service relationship has no end, 
then you are lost. And even with 2.4 billion memorialized pages, there's a big problem because when you look into the details of memorialized pages, there isn't an end to it. There's no yeah. point where 50 years from now, Facebook, you know, you're only allowed your memorial page for 10 years, or if there's no one visit in it for two years, it will be archived or deleted. So how do you keep the, the social media graveyard intact and looked after? And they haven't got an end to a memorialized page. So there'll be 2.4 billion memorialized pages in 2100, which is the, probably the same time that we'll, we will be flooded anyway from climate change because of lack of endings <laughs> in product relationships. So on that on that happy note, <laughs> uh, we're coming up to the end. We're coming up to time. I mean, I think part of that, it, it kind of sounds really depressing, and that's part of the re reason why I think probably companies don't, or organizations, or just culturally, we kind of push it away. But really, your thesis is the, is the opposite, which is if you think about it from the start, then it actually becomes part of the whole kind of process. It's not as kind of dark and, and certainly not as meaningless because you add meaning to it at the end. So, you you know, maybe endings is your answer to this question, but Power of Ten is based on, it's a homage to this uh, Ray and Charles Eames film where it's um, called Powers of Ten, where yeah. they zoom out from, you know, one meter to 10 meters to 100 meters and so forth, and then back in and show the kind of relative size of things in the universe. And it always struck me as a very good metaphor for design, working at a bunch of different levels, at that kind of detail level to the kind of ecosystem level and stuff. Absolutely. So um, my final question to guests is always, what one small thing do you think is is overlooked that either needs to be designed or is is well designed that would make a, a huge difference to the world? Well, yeah, I am going to say ends to that. And I, I think the, it's interesting <laughs> to the power of 10 thing, I think it's really interesting because people are focusing on the particular discipline. So product industry is looking at material waste and they talk about plastics and the sea and you, problems with social networks as stacks of that, which is um, around lack of endings. And so a lot of this is about coming out of your discipline, your product thing, and to see the same problem of lack of endings is happening in digital service and product relationships. And don't for one minute think consumerism is like locked into your product world of plastics. It's the problems happen across these categories. Joe, thanks very much for being my guest on Power of 10. It's great to share it with you. And um, thanks a lot for having us on. So where can people find you? You're on Twitter as Joe McLeod? Uh, no, actually, Mr. McLeod on Twitter. and Mr. McLeod, uh, Yeah, and go right. to the website, andn.co, and the book is on Amazon, Ends by Joe McLeod. That should find it. And it's an audio book, it's a paperback book, and it's an e-book. And you can get that one also on Smash Words and Apple Books. So. An audio book that you've read yourself, actually. Yes, you? my smooth, dulcet, estuary accent. Yes, it's me. <laughs> and if anyone gets the chance to hear Joe or watch Joe uh, speak, uh, you're very, very entertaining. It was, it was definitely uh, one of the best things at UX Australia. I heard that many, many times. Oh, thanks very much. That's great to hear. Thanks, Andy. You can find the transcript of Power of 10 on thisishcd.com, uh, where you'll also find the other podcasts on the network. My name's Andy Palane. You'll find me online as A Palane on Twitter and, and most other places, and also palane.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.